forgot the name of our podcast, bro. You forgot one. Sorry. No, his his one is welcome to uh, dead format. Yeah. I, you, you, I was can, about you can to say, go. I'm just reminding you. Yeah. Of, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> welcome to the dead format, episode eighty six. My name is Ian McEwen, and I'm joined tonight by the father, Tom Smiley, and we're going to talk about legacy. So today was such a beautiful day. I got to go outside, hang out, play soccer with my kid in the backyard. He colored all over the walls for the first time, and he threw his cauliflower right in the trash. What was he coloring Um, with? uh, Chalk or what? No, no, he was coloring with crayons and not like the easy washable ones. We had to break out the Mr. Clean magic erasers. He had himself a little time out. It uh, wasn't wasn't the best. Well, that's good, man. At least he's feeling better, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, his flu's gone, everything. Everything's good on that end. That's awesome. And it's good we're, we're starting off talking about kids because we're going to actually have a G-rated episode this, this episode. I know we've been doing a theme through uh, the 80s where if it's acceptable in the 80s, it's acceptable in the podcast, but we have a very special guest tonight. The returning guest, the one and only Dr. Rich Shea, and we are we couldn't be more excited, honestly. He is a breach expert, uh, as, as much as anybody is a breach expert right now, right? Because the deck is so new, and we, we're really lucky to have him on, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, what ho, guys? What ho? How's it going? It's been going great. It's been a long, a long time since you've been on. And anytime somebody messages me about the podcast and they ask for a recommended episode to listen to, I always say, don't listen to any of them except <laughs> except the one that we had with you, because that's the only one that I feel comfortable telling people about. Hey, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now, Tom, has it occurred to you that maybe... Maybe your kid was just unhappy because I don't know if you've ever actually eaten cauliflower before, but it's just really bad broccoli. And so if I had a green Sharpie and I were a small child and I had cauliflower, I'd try to build my own broccoli. Yeah, well, so he he drew on the walls with a red crayon and he only took a little bite of, of the cauliflower. And then we asked him, hey, did you eat all your cauliflower? And he goes, no, threw it in the trash. And we went and checked, and um, it was in the trash. So, so he might have just been expressing his disapprobation for cauliflower. It, it yeah. <laughs> I, can't I, I have to Google him. that word, and I have a mechanical keyboard, so I don't want to. I don't want to uh, go do that now because everybody will know. <laughs> <laughs> so I've eaten cauliflower before, and I guess if you fry it, it turns out not to be that bad, but. You can sort of fry a boot and it's not that bad, so it's not really a fair thing. What is it? Is it a fungus? What is it? Because it's it's, it's not going through photosynthesis. It's a vegetable. It's a vegetable. It's just a... It's a root. I don't know. It's 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 not very good. It's got to be a root, right? There's no way it grows above ground. No, I think it does. Really? It's not like like photosynthesis, It it sort of grows like a cabbage. I I have no idea whether or not that's correct. But I'm assuming it grows above ground. And if you roast them in the oven with either a little little bit of lemon juice, salt and pepper, or buffalo sauce, that's an actual way of going about it. They're really good. Interesting. Yeah, if you you cook it so that it's sort of charred or fried, it it ends up being pretty reasonable. 
I just but, remember as a kid there was broccoli, which was like my friend, and then there was evil broccoli that would show up every once in a while. And right. It was just this white, <laughs> this taste, this totally tasteless, odorless thing that exactly. just showed up, and it was just nightmare fuel. Right. I'm. I'm. You know. I'm not. I'm not blaming you here, Tom. I'm just saying that if you don't want your walls painted red, maybe you shouldn't feed your kid. You know, cauliflower. I think. I think you've convinced me. You've absolutely <laughs> convinced me. Oh man. Well, that's a start. That's a way to start an episode. We uh Did you play any magic this weekend, Tom? No, but uh my my friends thought I did because we were starting to get prepped and talk about what the team was going to look like for the Team SCG coming up. And you had sent me your deck list and I had forwarded the screenshot to JT and Mike. And what they both they called me, and they were like, "Oh, how'd the tournament finish for you? Like, how how'd you do? How'd it go?" Oh. Because in the, in the picture, it didn't have your name on it. It was like split top eight. Right. So they they assumed that I was back in the saddle when um when I was not. Gotcha. So how how did things go for you? They went really well, man. I dropped game one and then didn't lose another game before I split the finals. So it was uh it was fun. I'm actually playing. Awesome. In the, I'm playing in the team pioneer. Uh, or team SCG as well. So yeah, just shaking the dust off a little. And Outstanding. Like Are you playing with Topher and Adam? I am. Yeah. The the Falmouth. Uh, we we got to come up with a good name actually. I never even thought about it. I don't know. Just make sure Topher has a good back brace. <laughs> yeah, Topher's been killing it lately. He he's put up some good results. So so is Adam for them. For uh, actually, Adam's put up uh, some Grixis Delver results even this week. And some, uh, some even some results with some subpar decks like Elves and Breakfast. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I really am. So it was fun to dust off the. Uh, even though it was not, like nice golf weather outside, it was uh, it was fun to be playing some uh, Magic too. So, what's the format of the Star City tournament? It's it is team constructed with standard, Pioneer, and Modern. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just thinking it's it's a format that used to be relevant, a format that also used to be relevant, and then the hot new thing all put together, right? It is. They're trying to piggyback those formats on the back of Pioneer, and it's gonna work. It um it got me to go. Yeah, that's that's so, pretty much exactly what what it is. Oh, you know what else like we're going game. to? I don't know how this wasn't the lead in. We I actually got approval to go to the 40k i'm going to the 40k awesome yeah and i bought i bought my ticket before hoping i was gonna get to go and my wife already put it on the calendar and i'm pumped that's really cool that was actually going to be the intro and i was so flustered from forgetting the name of our podcast that i uh, i botched (laughs) Well, it makes sense because, I mean, if you think about it, if I just saw your format, I'd assume it was a modern format, (laughs) right? Like the dead format. Oh, yeah. Obviously, that's modern. Oh. Mike Rapp, if you're listening, you're still relevant. Yeah. (laughs) It it can hang out with extended and masks block constructed in the bottom of the dustbin, I guess. Oh, man. That's rough. R.I.P. Lynn Civy, right? Yeah. Exactly. Take that, legend rule. (laughs) 
So, Rich, you're going as well, if I'm not mistaken. Right? I think I, I think I am. I, uh, I got a ticket. I secured a ticket. I did then learn that uh, Lobster Con is the very same day as the 40k. Indeed. That's just tremendously unfortunate because I can't go to both. There's only one of me last I checked. <laughs> if anyone could pull it off. I know, don't you don't you guys have like an institute lab at MIT? <laughs> so we can we can we have time. You have a few months to get it together. I guess there are a few months before that. I'll see what I can do. But you know, I I've been to the previous uh, lobster cons. They've been absolutely wonderful events. They've been a blast. Uh, Dave does such a good job putting that all together. So Missing either of these would be really unfortunate. I haven't been to Jeremy's previous tournament, but he's uh, he's been a, a dealer that I've had really good experiences with. Um, he's very generous, and if you just look at the price structure, it's completely bonkers. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. I, I just had to, like, FOMO. I didn't even think about it. I just bought that ticket. And actually, the refund policy is really good, too, so... Right. You might as well. There's no reason not to. You have up to 72 hours before the tournament to get a refund, so there's really no reason not to get a ticket. Yeah, I Just feel bad think talking it up now because no one else can get in, right? Uh, yeah, but we're still going to talk about it. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry, everybody. But what you think about Legacy as a format where you had 700 people without blinking an eye, drop $200 on an entry to basically go, I, I don't want to call wherever we're going like a dump. Sure, you can call it Missouri. Is that where it is? <laughs> you, you know, I'm just, I'm going to imply it to, to go somewhere just to play this format. Uh, we really need a Grand Prix. You can call it a cultural wasteland and Josh Pershbacher, I'll send you a tweet. Like I know, the tweet, like supporting, supporting the fact that it's a cultural wasteland, or admonishing it. I don't. It's, I think it's a uh, no value judgment, you know. Okay. Well, look, I've I've been on Twitter before. If someone's sending you a tweet, it's just bad. Doesn't matter what it's about, <laughs> just bad. Yo. Okay. So my wife is trying to fall asleep next door, and I just got a text message that said, "How much are your tickets?" Question mark. Excla exclamation point question mark exclamation so, point so first your wife's on the right track if you want to fall asleep listening to us talking is a perfect thing to do that's true that's true um, she can only hear my end though so oh okay so you might be keeping her awake but if she could hear this whole thing she'd be too asleep to ask you about any sort of ticket to Missouri that you might have I know we're gonna pretend like she was dreaming when this conversation happened <laughs> exactly so I actually, I actually do think that this is evidence that Legacy isn't the dead format. It might be the format that certain parties wish were dead, but uh, it's not a dead format at all. It's not, because it's it's something. And I think we've, we've had this conversation before, but not on the podcast, maybe, because I don't think you've been on the podcast since Pioneer came out. Correct me if I'm wrong, Rich, but... I don't it, think I have, no. Legacy represents something, right? It's... All the cards ever, except the ones that are restricted in vintage. And then it's it's sort of moved a little since then, but it's an eternal format. When people talk about the difference between modern and, you know, whether modern is an eternal format or not, it's not really a debate. 
it's it's just sometimes people lump in modern with internal format, but right. really what it is now the pioneer exists is it's just an arbitrary time frame, right? I, I think that modern is dying, if not dead yet. Um, I think that legacy has a much firmer grip on existence than modern. Legacy is an eternal format. It has cards stretching back to the beginning of the game when wizards had good art and that sort of thing. And modern, <laughs> modern doesn't. Modern is a time period, a snapshot in time, starting with the modestly terrible but not as terrible as they would get card frames and going forward. And, you know, modern as I see it, just unless something happens, unless it gets an infusion of blood, is just going to bleed out. Um, the the local game store, Battlegrounds in Norton, that I used to play Modern at pretty regularly, has been struggling, from what I've heard, to get people to go there to play. Because the format lost its uh, sort of anointed status. It lost its status as a well-supported format. Yeah, and what's funny is they still have a lot of Grand Prix this year. So it's almost like, uh, I think Wizards kind of was hedging their bets, maybe, or Channel Fireball, whoever's making that decision, sort of hedging their bets that, you know, in case Pioneer gets rejected, but it doesn't seem like it is, right? It seems like everybody's lukewarm or better on Pioneer, so really Modern's case for existing, I think, is, is pretty weak, 2021 20, mm -hmm. and forward. So I'm reminded very much of Extended. Um, for those of you who are listening who don't know what Extended is, there used to be a format that in its inception was 4th edition onward, but also dual lands for some reason, because they had an exemption. And in the beginning, it was a non-rotating format, and then Wizards decided to rotate it, but when Wizards started to rotate um, extended, the format essentially died because it changed. And I so what I kind of feel like is that Pioneer is a long, complicated way for Wizards to rotate modern mm -hmm. without admitting that they're rotating modern. Oh, no, that's basically exactly what it is, yeah. It's, it's just the, you know, the new time frame, right? And it... it Honestly, the, the play patterns I find a lot more enjoyable, so I, I, I can stomach playing it. So I'm happy with it. Well, I, haven't, I haven't played much Pioneer. I've done two leagues playing the uh, a Lotus Veil deck, and but I, I used to play a lot of Modern. It was a lot of fun. It was sort of two decks launching missiles at each other until one of them exploded. Uh, at this point, I only put one deck left together, and that was a Tron deck, and now they've gone and banned the Microsynth Lattice, so I technically don't have any modern decks put together. Oh, wow. That's right. I do remember you told me about that Lotus Field deck before anyone else did. That was like the, the premier weekend of Pioneer, I want to say. There was like a team tournament. Do you know what I'm was, talking about? Um, Your buddy the judge with like maybe Andy. What, what was this? Was... You talking about Around, a Star City Pioneer event? Back in like December, Rich, I remember Rich telling me about the Lotus Field deck. Right, right. Um, I want to say that Matt Murray told me about the Lotus Field deck. That's who it was. Yep. And it's a it's a cool deck. I, I haven't I haven't that's my only 
10 matches of Pioneer, and I haven't played it in a while. Yeah, it seems to be like the, the hot deck now. Like yeah. uh, that and Inverter. Yeah. That's a shame because it'll probably get banned soon. Um, I, I don't think it's fun to play a format where you're constantly on the edge of oblivion with whatever you're playing. Said the vintage player. <laughs> well, yes, I, I guess that's true. But I feel like Wizards have been very uh, eager and keen to ban things in Pioneer and um, more reticent to ban things in Vintage, although lately the power level has been such that things have absolutely needed to get banned in Vintage. Yeah, no, I agree. And judging by so many insane plays, uh, Underworld Breach might be a problem, right? Um... It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me if it ends up getting banned in Legacy too. Yeah. So, well, that's that's the meat of the conversation, and that's why we're so happy to have you here. I was saving your next guest spot for episode ninety-three because of oh man, the old card frames. I thought it would be apropos to have you on, but well, I could definitely prattle on for two hours about how awful the new card frames are and how they make <laughs> Magic not worth playing, but. Um. Yeah. Are we are we really going to have to worry about the new card frames when when everything goes digital and they're just going to sell skins to where you can you can have the old frame as long as you go to Pax East and get the the skin for it. There's no card backs on Moto. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, we're talking I, about the frame. For for oh, arena, frame. can you actually pay to get the better looking card frame on arena? I mean, I mean, we're not there yet, but okay. With the way things are going, I I absolutely would because on moto they just make everything worse. So it, it's kind of bad that I have APAC lands in real life and they have beautiful art and they have the correct card frames. But if I want to play in my nice kangaroo planes on Moto, I have to look at the 8th edition card frames. Ooh. But what's even worse, and the real horror of this all, is that on Moto, they will go into your collection and make your cards even uglier. So <laughs> if you have, say, a Leovold, they will alter your Leovold to have the stupid Legend Dunce hat. The one that really got me was Jit. Does that have a stupid legend hat on it too? I think so. They changed how it looked. I don't know. Right, they a... change things. So change is generally bad, and when it's done by moto people, it's going to be horrifying. And so they they went through and cards that did not have the ugly legends card frame that had the the M fifteen card frame were altered to have the stupid Legends dunce hat. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, if you look at a, a Legends card that's been printed with the newer frame, it has a stupid dunce hat, so you know it's dumb. Yeah, wasn't Nickel Bolas in, like, a Master set? Probably. I've lost track. I think so. But, yes, agreed. Or I think maybe in Stang was, but... Was Stang? Yeah, I think so. Uh, did, anyway. did they actually print a Stang twin token? Yes. 100%. That's wow. a fact. So, yeah. That is a, that that is definitely a travesty that, that they are editing your cards. 
And it would be nice, you know, maybe that's what we need to draw people into uh, arena, right? Is the aesthetics to be pleasing. I know you can't disable animation, so it's still going to be a mess, but... I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the aesthetics are on Arena. Um, they could be nice, but Magic hasn't looked nice since 2014, so I don't really know. I feel like Wizards are just... They've just given up making their cards look nice, and they look like complete garbage now. Yo, do you guys know that there's Commander decks coming out for every set now? Yes. I have no idea. They're, they sort of reworked their product line to where instead of doing like the, the intro decks that they used to release every set... I believe they're they're doing commander products in place of that. Wow. Yeah, I just found that out on Saturday. I I have no idea. I mean, they're really flailing around. At some point, I've realized that I am not the target demographic for whatever Wizards is trying to sell. Yeah. I, yeah. I think we we both realized that we act, I think we might have actually said those exact words quite a while ago. That we're just, we're not what they're looking for anymore. And I think they're really trying to branch out. So they're making products for everybody all the time. Except it, us. It, yeah, I mean, it used to be, it used to be that like as a Magic player, you had that fear of missing out to where you like needed to get every new product. Right, like, I remember oh, that. I need these commander decks for these fluster storms or scavenging oozes or whatever, or true names when they came out. And now right. there's just such an overload that one... You can't do it all. And that leads to people sort of disengaging and saying, all right, well, I can't do that anymore. This isn't for me. Right. That's so well put. I, I, you know, all of us are a little bit older. We're, um, we're at a spot where maybe we have a little more disposable income than we did in middle school. But I don't feel like wizards are providing me with anything that I want to buy. Um. Do you think that it's intentional? Like, do you do you think that they're underestimating the size of our market, or do you think that they actually don't want us around because of of their goals? Right, they're they're trying to pump up standard, and we draw people into formats like Legacy. So I kind of feel like they were like, oh, you know, go play out on the patio, and then <laughs> after a little while, they turned out the lights, and now they turned on the sprinkler, right? I, what I think is happening is that Wizards of the Coast are trying to pursue new markets, but they're so hyper-fixated on expansion that they've sort of lost track and taken for granted a lot of their longtime players. I don't think that it's intentional. I think that they've just sort of forgotten about us. Yeah, when, when you have a company that's sort of like publicly driven, you're looking at growth. And I know Hasbro is really putting the spotlight on Wizards to show that growth. I think that's exactly what they're trying to do. So that's a great point. Yeah. And how hard would it be to give you a product that you actually wanted to buy? It wouldn't be that hard, would it? I'm sure they could. I'm sure that, that Wizards of the Coast could easily put together a product that I would be thrilled to buy. Oh, bro, Gavin's been teasing us for like two years now about this old frame ponders and stuff. Uh, how about an old frame ponder? And you know what, while we're at it, how about in Korean? Can I get an old frame ponder in Korean? Is that really so hard to make? Oh, man. Every time I see... Wh whoever does the Twitter posts of new cards with the 9394 frame and like oh, the text that right. it would be if it was that... 
Like, yeah. there was a dark confidant that was printed that had, like, a beta frame and the yeah. awful rules text that a beta <laughs> card would have had. That's great every, rules text. Every That's... every time I see those th- those cards, I want them. Effects right. that prevent or redistribute damage cannot be used to counter this loss of life. Redirect damage, but yeah. And, you know, they could do that. They could They could print that, couldn't they? And... And yet they don't. They don't. No. They don't. And so I I feel like they're just not trying, almost like they've forgotten, because there's there's no real reason that they couldn't do that, right? There's no reason that they couldn't but they choose not to. And that's so. that's a premium product that they could definitely charge more than their normal things for. If yeah. they did a secret lair old school i would go buy that and i haven't i haven't bought a watsi product in a while right you know i was almost going to buy one of those secret lair products um i really like the art that they had on the Saren visions i thought that was really cool and as i was going to buy it i saw that it was only available in foil and i'm not a cheater so of course i don't want those Oh, so I, I don't even know why. Why? Why are they not able to print this in non-foil? That's a good question. I I would think right that they would want they would they would have a huge incentive to fix their foiling process so the cards don't do what they do now. And it's been years, year, literal like almost a decade since they've started to have these awfully tented warped marked foils and i i don't know if they can't or they won't do anything about it it's it's pretty sad so they probably can't honestly because they have regular cardboard on the back and another material on the front and that's going to lead to warping so i don't actually think they can fix this problem but they did it right with with the Foils from 2003 through 2011 or whatever, that those don't warp. Right. Um, so they actually do warp more than regular cards. Okay. They're, they're, not, they're not great. And part of it is basically if you take some paint and you paint a little picture on a card, it won't warp it. But if you paint the whole front of the card, it will warp. And they used to foil less of it. They didn't foil the image. So gotcha. I like I like that sort of mixed effect where you use the foil sparingly to like accent part of the card. I I really like how other games do that. And I feel like Watsi could definitely fix the foiling and tenting problem if they like if they didn't do if they didn't foil the entire thing, like you said. Well, the, the other option, in my opinion, is, you know, like Delver of Secrets? Those don't those don't warp at all because they're foil on both sides. Sure, sure. They could just make the back of the card foil and then print a magic card on that foil. <laughs> the only problem there would be, like, if you're playing limited and the card chips and then you know it's your foil, right? The other problem, that is, isn't it going to be twice as thick? Well, that, so that's the thing. Are foils thicker than regular cards? I oh, believe they, they are. They usually are, yeah. Okay, that, I mean, I, that could be a problem. But they, I mean, they, so, weigh, 
they weigh more than regular cards too. Because I I have not seen this in person, but I have seen videos of shady people weighing packs to identify foils. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, they, they feel thicker. I mean, part of the, my my real problem with foils isn't an aesthetic thing. My real problem is that they are very often detectable, even through sleeves. When I was at Waterbury, I was paired against someone, and I was able to, without looking at the cards, go through his deck and separate all, almost all of his foils from his non-foils. And I was really close to being exact about that, because the foils just are different. They have a different thickness. They, they don't feel the same. And so I just avoid running them. I think I've I've run a single foil in my 75 once outside of wish targets and that was because I couldn't find a non-foil version of a card back around like 2004. That seems acceptable as a wish target. Right. So I, I the three ways that I don't mind foils are wish targets because you don't really put them in your deck uh, as your commander and as a, a flip card, because they don't actually go in your deck. Right. Yeah. For me, it's yeah, it's wish targets or target practice, basically. <laughs> but anyway, we need to breach our main topic because we've we've been off in Boomerland for too long. We need to get a we need to do a generation check. We need to get some nineteen twenty three and me going. You're saying we need but, to escape? Yeah, we need to. Back to the underworld, right? Back to uh, the deck that. How many? How many weeks has it been that you've been playing Breach Rich? Uh, for a little while, I've I have not been this excited about a Legacy deck in years. I haven't I haven't had this much fun playing Legacy in years, to be honest with you. That's amazing, and yeah, you've been really consistent since the first league you played with the deck. You've been saying that, and yeah. I, I bought into fearing the deck basically completely off off your analysis before the first LAL. And I've been sort of designing decks in fear of Breach since then. And I think that the effect it's had on the metagame has been tremendous. But mm-hmm. the, the results for the deck, in terms of the preliminaries and the challenges that we've had, haven't been on par with the the players that are playing the deck, the pilots, how they feel about the deck. So that's what I'm trying to iron out here. Really, yeah. the, the primary question is, you know, what what do you think about that? Do you think that it, the metagame has adjusted? Do you think that, you know, people are still learning how to play and build the deck? Is it some combination thereof? Or just interested in your thoughts in general. So I think people have really adapted well to the deck. I think that the... The deck is really good, and someone asked me in my last stream, does Underworld Breach need to be banned in Legacy? And my answer is, I don't know. I wouldn't feel bad if they banned it, but I also don't think that they need to. Um, it's, it's the best deck in the format. It's tremendously powerful, but it's beatable, and decks have been adjusting, and so I don't feel like the deck has been too good. No, I, I completely agree. I, I think that the adjustment has been really pretty incredible. Like, yeah. And we're seeing a winner's metagame all the time in our sampling, so it could just be that the, the decks that are adjusting are rising to the top, but 
it's still not that many people playing in these events. So it does seem like everyone's just adjusted to the deck and almost in real time, right? There wasn't like a period mm -hmm. of time where you had three or four breach decks in the top eight of these events. Right. Breaches never put up unacceptable results. So I think that one of the biggest arguments against needing to take DCI-related action is that where are the results? The, the deck has been performing well, but not any better than anything else, and it certainly hasn't been too good. No, yeah, that's... The, the, reaction, the reaction in the metagame to the deck was almost immediate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's definitely one of the reasons why that didn't happen. So, I know that Ian brought up that point earlier. People were really sort of metagaming their sideboard choices around that breach deck before it even put up results, just from right. this being shared on Twitter. So. Right. Yeah, I think part of that I think is how much people hate losing the combo, and I think it's <laughs> also how much people hate losing to a new combo deck because that's like that's like a double whammy. Like you're losing to new cards and a combo deck in Legacy, right? So I think there's a very visceral reaction to that, and it maybe it's an overreaction right now. So we need to wait until the metagame stabilizes some more and then see how Breach does. But what do you think about the build? So there's there's a few builds going around. There there are multiple ways you can do it. I really like the red, white, and blue approach, um, and uh, the reason for that is Veil of Summer. I think it's it's important to note how significant Veil of Summer has been in shaping and warping the direction of the metagame. So before Veil of Summer, you had Force of Will combo decks, and then you had discard based combo decks, right? And and then Veil of Summer happened, and wow, Veil of Summer, that's a ridiculously broken magic card. Veil of Summer makes it bad when you cast Force of Will, but it makes Thoughtseize an embarrassment. The old Ad Nauseum Tendrils decks, the sort that, uh, that Cyrus played and advocated... Accelerate discard spells. Right. And the only main deck kill condition is halted by Veil of Summer. So if if I'm playing against you and you you Veil of Summer and I'm playing Ad Nauseam, well that's it. I can't win on my turn. All I can do is pass the turn and then hope that next turn you don't have another Veil of Summer. And that's it. And so that means that the Ad Nauseam decks are not playable anymore now that this card exists. Wow. Yeah. Shots fired. That's uh, that's just a fact, though. I mean, we, we talked to Alex McKinney a couple episodes ago about the, all the hoops that Tess had to jump through to, to exist in a post-Veil world. Right. Right. And now it's kind of one of those solved problems where we're seeing Veil really decline. I mean, in this challenge, there were no main deck Veil of Summers and only six total between main and sideboard. But mm -hmm. if those decks were to come back in their old form, Veil would just come back. So it's one of those right. things that's silently kept in check. Just and I think that's... It, it is. It is. So usually when this happens, there'll be a period where there's no Veil, and then someone will do well with Thoughtseize, and suddenly Veil's back. So... Compare that with Orm's Chant. Orm's Chant doesn't get Veiled. 
and Orange Chant halts all of the control decks. It halts Delver. If you kick Orange Chant, then Dredge or Elves is essentially getting time walked. Indeed. So yeah, Orange Chant's a, a real card for sure. It is. It is. I really like the art on it too. It's a great card. And so, if you're going to be playing a card in your combo deck to halt your opponent, Orm's Chant combined with Force of Will, that's a pretty good way to go. So, what do you think the deck's best and worst matchup? So, best matchups is kind of weird because that would have probably been adjusted by the meta, right? Like, a lot of the decks I think you would name as best matchups are decks that we're, we're not really seeing like in the past couple weeks, right? Right, right. It's really had a massive impact on the metagame. Um, the the best matchups are those green, blue, white Oko decks that dirtle around and make some elk and then die. Mm -hmm. um, those decks don't really do anything. And, and yet we've seen fewer and fewer do-nothing miracle Oko decks. Yeah, if, if not for one player in the challenge this past week, we would have seen no Astrolabes, no Terminus, and only one deck with even Snapcaster Mage in it. Wow. It's pretty I mean, incredible, right? That is. That is warping. And, and so if you think about what the deck can do, what it can handle, what it can't handle, it's really bad against pressure backed up by permanence and... I, if you look at the deck that won the challenge, I'm actually not surprised that it is a, a cloud post deck because the the scariest card that the deck can face is Karn. Yeah, the Great Creator. Yeah, Karn the Great Creator does a few things. Uh, first, he ruins Vintage, never should have been printed. <laughs> um, second. You literally can't go off when he's on the table, and the deck generally can't get rid of him game one. Game okay. one, you, you have Teferi, you have Seal of Cleansing, um, but Karn is a Planeswalker, and most builds of the Breach deck literally can't win when Karn has arrived. Yeah, that's accurate. I did see two of the five in the challenge this week did have a single Chain of Vapor. Can that hit Karn? Chain of Vapor can. Does that main deck? There were two of the five, and they were the, I, th I believe, the two that finished uh, lowest, but... Okay. Yeah, and, and then it, it has all these other cards. Um, you know, Trinisphere is annoying, but Chalice of the Void is devastating. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder... So you were the one who brought this to my attention first, Devastation Tide. Right. Now, Devastation Tide is a miracle that for one in a blue bounces all non-land permanents. That gets rid of whatever diverse array of planeswalkers, creatures, artifacts, and enchantments you don't like. Yeah, so... The regular casting cost on that is three blue blue, right? So that's it is. Yeah, not it, too it's realistic. It's uncastable under normal circumstances, but it's a miracle, so you can miracle it. So you basically have to set it up with brainstorm mm -hmm. or ponder 
or right. preordained technically. Right, exactly. Interesting. So there, there are there... a few really interesting cards that get rid of most things. The problem I've always had with Chain of Vapor is that it doesn't get around Chalice at 1, and while you can go off through Chalice at 1, it really hobbles your ability to develop. How often do, are you seeing Chalice for 1? Is it mostly a, a game 1 thing? Like, how many Chalice for 1s versus Chalice for 0s would you say that you see? Once people figure out what you're playing, you're probably not going to face a Chalice at 1. Okay, so it's a game 1 thing? Yeah. So, in that sense... Chain of Vapor is pretty reasonably safe, though I like it less than most people because it's still minus one card, and maybe I'm just too greedy. <laughs> I guess you have those corner cases where you can use it to bounce your own artifact, sack a land, bounce your opponent's hate card, and then get that extra storm to be able to mill yourself a little bit deeper, but yeah, I, I understand that. So there are all these really interesting cards that deal with most but not all problems. So there's there's Equipoise, which phases out creatures and artifacts your opponents control, but it doesn't hit Leyline and it doesn't hit Karn. And then there's Teferi's Realm, where you can phase out any one card type, except you can't phase out Planeswalker. So Karn is really hard to deal with, and all the things that would otherwise be pretty general solutions don't deal with Karn. Oh, interesting. Yeah, those cards, Equipoise, or whatever it's called, and Teferi's Realm are very old cards, right? They are, yeah. They're, they're, they're both old cards that they can deal with a lot of problems at once. Um, Teferi's Realm, if your opponent has three artifacts out, they're all gone. Um, and Equipoise can deal with all of the artifacts and creatures your opponent has. Interesting. So, so yeah, it really seems like, is Devastation Tide really the best there is? I, I, I mean, I imagine you guys have really scoured this question. I, I, don't have a, I don't have a better answer for general removal of a lot of things, but this is why it's sort of an interesting arms race, right? The the more you know about what sort of hate you're going to face, the better cards you can have that will deal with it. Right. Um, and yeah. then, of course, there's the Rodrigo Tagore strategy of not even trying to fight the hate and just becoming yeah, a mentor deck. Turning everything to the top. Oh. Wow. Sorry. Man. I got uh, <laughs> to cut that. Yeah, you, know, you don't need removal when you just have the nuts all the that time. That is actually a great way to set up Devastation Tide now that you mention it. Wow. Yeah. Oh. Wow. <laughs> Yikes. But I've noticed that the blue-white-red uh, Breach decks have even... Like, it's common to see one to two Lavinias in their sideboard now. So it's yep. even like the Breach decks are ready for the Breach decks, right? Yeah. Um. So my current build has... Two Lavinia and um, an Ashiok, which stops searching. And these cards make opposing breach decks and other combo decks malfunction. Yeah, well, I hadn't seen the Ashiok yet. So 
So I don't think I've seen anyone else play it, but I've been really happy with one copy. It's a win condition, and it just halts a lot of what a lot of decks are trying to do. Right. And then you get Mentor that just sort of leaps over the top of everything and right. lets you have this Mentor ridiculous is... win condition. I think what I really like about this deck is how it's taken so many sort of old cards that I, I don't want to say people thought were unplayable, but were definitely not in the spotlight for so many years. Mm-hmm. And now it's 2020 and we're talking about Orem's Chant and Equipoise and Teferi's... No, not Teferi's Response. Um, Teferi's Realm? Teferi's Realm. It's... One, it's super interesting to see the combo side of a Jeskai deck that can play, like, some control elements as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's it's such an amalgamation of all of these cards that ends up being really, really powerful. It is. And you can build the deck to be an all-in combo deck, and you can also build the deck to be a much slower combo deck. You, you know, when you get your french fries you can get small medium and large and when you're ordering your orms chance you get orms chance for one mana you get abeyance for two mana and then you get to ferry for three mana and i don't think we figured out the optimal number and type of just chant effects yeah it's really interesting i i was seeing decks last week as high as three to theory now this week they all seem to be on one so i like one because it's clunky and expensive but it's also incredibly good at what it does. It's an orange chant that also deals with a permanent, that also pitches to blue to force will because it's blue. And it's also a card that replaces itself. Yeah, I would personally I would I would be trying the upper end, like, you know, trying two to three of them, just because of exactly the reasons you just mentioned. It just mm-hmm. seems to fit so well. It does. But I, I don't have a good feel for how quickly the deck needs to go on average. So so one of my favorite things about this deck is that it it plays an interesting game of role assessment. Um, role assessment is trying to figure out, what am I doing in this matchup? If you're playing Belcher, you can only do one thing. You Belch. And if you're playing Miracles, Modulo some sort of off-the-top and treat the angels plan, you're probably the control deck. But this deck can actually play Drago until it's just the right time to win, and then win. Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of what makes it exciting. Yeah, I was... When I, like, originally saw these lists, I I didn't think about that. I, I saw the lion's eye diamonds and the petals and the fact that, like, you cast Breach on your turn two, and you can just dump on people. But the color combination lends itself to a lot of these cards where you can play the slower role, and and that's scary, right? Especially for those sort of, like, mid-range decks where you get into the line where you're like, okay, I'm playing against combo, I need to to close this game quick, I'm not going to win a long game, and then... A lot of the times you can just overcommit and get wrathed and then killed on turn whenever. So so one of the things uh, that I found, my last stream I played with an Intuition AK package in the deck. And what I was trying to do with that was leverage the fact that you're playing with four brain freeze. Because 
what if you build a deck so that you just outdraw your opponent, and then a legitimate brain freeze your opponent becomes a viable strategy? Yeah, um, I saw a screenshot on Twitter, and I, I, it probably wasn't from you, but it was, it was a breach doomsday matchup, where the doomsday player had resolved, <laughs> had resolved doomsday, Man. and um, and got brain freezed. <laughs> That's hilarious. I would not be playing doomsday right now. You'll no. get your brain frozen. Um, not, not a good time for that card. <laughs> right, but if you think about it. If you have two copies of Brain Freeze, it's kind of like Tendrils, where your opponent loses a deck point every turn. Yeah. I Yep. I guess they start with a higher life total, but you're right. And they're not losing it in, in chunks of two, they're losing it in chunks of three. And so, it, you kind of usually need to find two copies of Brain Freeze, but when you have enough draw, that's doable. So basically what that lets you do is you can win on your opponent's end step if he doesn't have an Emrakul or something like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, like, if you end up sort of cantripping and, and sculpting into two, you can use your opponent's turns against them. So they spend all this time trying to, like, dig up and maybe deal with your breach or find a piece of interaction, and all that time that they spent, or all those spells they spent searching for that just end up costing them three more cards. And all of this still remains to be explored. And that's part of what I find so exciting about this deck. I don't think we've optimized it yet. And and so far, it looks like it can exist as a healthy part of the metagame. So have you seen this article that was published by uh, Peter Vanderham, I believe, about the uh, the... Grixis Delver Breach deck in Channel Fireball today? I have not. I don't, uh, I'm not familiar at all with that. So it won an event in Europe a few weeks ago. I think it was like three weeks ago. Hmm. It was a relatively big event that was won by... It's like four Delvers, three Young Pyromancers, two Brazen Borrowers, and then like three Infernal Tutors, three Anzai <laughs> Diamonds... <laughs> Two Underworld Breach and a Brain Freeze. Wow. Yeah, it's really interesting. It, it's basically like, uh, you know, it's Grixis color, so you have like four Thoughtseize, but it, it's a lot like, uh, you know, just a Delver deck and a Breach deck smushed together, right? What what you'd imagine mm -hmm. from a, a Grixis Breach deck and Delver deck smushed together. Mm -hmm. But it's doing a lot better than I think, I, I don't know how many people are out there playing it, right? But... It's put up some real results so far. Hmm. I haven't seen it before. Yeah, there's a lot of variants out there. There's like the, the Ant or the Tess variant. Mm -hmm. I've there's seen that, yeah. The Oval Chase Daredevil variant. Which is hilarious and awesome with Riddlesmith. Mm -hmm. that, that's what we need more of in our lives is more Riddlesmith. Yeah, then there's the Emery Goblin Welder. <laughs> yep. Which is, you know, it, it looks like it, it could be a really powerful deck, but I don't know. It's, it seems like it's probably too cute. You know, just on paper, it seems like it's going through an extra hoop. But mm -hmm. the, and uh, I think I think one of the things that really hasn't been explored. Now we're talking we're talking about breach combo decks, but just breach in general as a value card. Right. 
right? Like the not the sort of not sexy build around way where you're like, this card you could you could kind of call Yogmas will. I know it's not, but there's there's a little bit of a case to be made for that card in like a more like slower value shell. So, well, I haven't tried it in Legacy, but in Vintage I tried that and. It was a pretty reasonable replacement for Snapcaster Mage. It it can just arrive and let you fire off a few cantrips. You can rebuy a mox or two, and it's it's pretty good value for two mana. Yeah, that is interesting. So it doesn't get you back a land like Will does when you play like a value Will. Right, but you only have one Yawgmoth's Will. Right, and you can have yeah many breaches. Mm-hmm. And Vintage isn't an LED format like Legacy is, so there's not that incentive. Like you mentioned, there's Moxin instead of Lotus Petal, which it's, it's much better to get back a value Mox than a value of Lotus Petal. Exactly. And in that sense, it does lend itself more to being a value card than just a combo card. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm interested too, Tom. Like, you know, like a pile deck, right? Just like a, a regular old deck. Like, how much value could you get out of Underworld Breach? Yeah, absolutely. I remember when we were talking about this card in the set review, and that that was the first thing that popped into my mind. I know that people had started to talk about combo variants with it, but I was definitely more interested in it in a mid-range value shell. But obviously, people people have been working on the combo side of it. Yeah, and I think that the Delver deck... I think that's the closest we've come, really, to seeing it at least published in like a fair deck, right? And that that's well, more of like a more of a curiosity than actual. Yeah, it's more deck. of like a like a double plan A that dodges all of the hate, right? Right. So exactly. you take a look at like the Delver side of the deck and the Breach side of the deck, and obviously there's some like cross synergy. But I think the reason why the deck has probably been performing so well is. What do you do when you sideboard against that deck? Like, mm. uh, how much Delver hate are you bringing in? How much combo hate are you bringing in? Are you bringing in graveyard hate for Breach? How how do you formulate a plan against a deck that has two like pretty divergent win win conditions, but still has cross synergies between them with the Thoughtseize plan, with you being able to play a Delver game and cast a value breach late game? Um, I I would be I would probably be the most confused playing against that deck the first time than I have been in a really long time in the format. So, do you think that you're better off doing that, or would it make more sense to be an all-in breach deck game one and then to sideboard in Delver and Pyromancer? I actually was thinking that I would rather just side in Pyromancer and. And mentor, right? If, if you're going to be in those colors, because mm -hmm. it seems like the best breach deck might be that color, like a uh, Jeskai, uh, blue, white, red. So if you were able to go, you know, a regular quote unquote regular breach deck, maybe compromise two or three spots, you know, and then take out your enlightened tutors and shave on your combo pieces and bring in like four pyromancers and four. Mentors, or I guess you could even bring in Delvers into that deck, right? Why not? You certainly could. They I are mean, a little enchantment heavy, right? They, they are. Um, 
Although after you sideboard, well, it, it becomes much more interesting. So, you know, the, the sort of the the original really good combo deck was Trix. I know that there was Frostbloom before, but Trix was really, really the good combo deck, and that sideboarded in Negators. And that's what I always remember as the first really good transformational sideboard plan. You'd be the stack, and your opponent would load up on red blasts and um, things to counter your your Necropotence or your Illusion Stonate, and then just, all right, turn one, Ritual 5-5, five, five, go. And that's yeah. always been a really good plan. So the idea of having the most broken combo deck you can game one, because your opponent probably won't have as many cards like Stony Silence or um, Rest in Peace or various other anti-combo measures, and then, once he's got all those in, you just bring in a monster and start winning. Yeah. And you know what? I, I think that actually the, the discard in the the Grixis Delver deck won't you know, overlap with the Grixis Breach deck, loans itself to that transformation a lot better than the silence effects in the other deck. Yeah, for sure. So long as you're in a universe where Thoughtseize is not an embarrassment. Right. Yes. That's a big point. It's very, very possible, and even pretty likely, that if, let's say that Veil of Summer is just banned for the sake of the argument, then there's a, there's a non-zero chance that this won't be a red, white, and blue deck anymore, that this will turn into a Grixis deck, and the white will be replaced by discard spells, because... You need blue, obviously, because you're playing magic, and you need red because you're playing breach. You don't really need the white, though, do you? How but, important is Enlightened Tutor in your estimation? I don't think you need it. I think that um, the Tagore's build has intuition instead, and that's a reasonable approach. And, you know, it wouldn't even be crazy to run Gamble. Yeah, that, that's what the, uh, the Daredevil deck does. So... I don't think you need Enlightened Tutor, and I think that the there are a few cases where Orm's Chance is straight up better than Discard, but Discard is more disruptive, and um, so I think that the main reason that we're not seeing a Grixis build is Veil. Yeah, that, that definitely seems like the reason. If anything was to happen to Veil... Moving to a Grixis version that had access to Enlightened to or sorry, not um, Infernal Tutor and Discard would just be like that would be something that I'd be really like wanting to explore more. But that that Delver variant, the Discard works better for them obviously because you get to pick your plan of attack. So you might have an early game where you're trying to sculpt to see which direction you want to go, and seeing that they only have one piece of interaction for your creatures or no pieces of interaction for your creatures might lend you to to go that direction. I don't know. I'm probably talking too much about this deck that has only seen a few results and I'm just happy, <laughs> happy to talk about. Well, it, it is evidence that we haven't fully finalized the build of the deck. And even the red, white, and blue deck, I don't think we've fully optimized yet. Yeah, absolutely. And just to sort of reflect on the metagame at large, and, and you know, we've been talking a lot about how the metagame has adjusted to the presence of Breach, but t just to what degree, 
just wanted to highlight really quickly the sort of the macro archetypes from this challenge this week. Yeah, that's a good idea. We had seven chalice decks, including the the winner and one of the top four decks that were both uh, twelve posts. But we had three post, one aggro Eldrazi, and three aggro loam decks. Then six delvers, which were a smattering of rug, Grixis, blue red, death shadow, and Esper. And then five breach decks that were all blue white red. And then there were three Vile decks, four Black-Red Reanimator decks, two Merit Lage decks, and a handful of one-offs. But really, everything is concentrated in Chalice, Delver, or Breach, right? I mean, Black-Red had a very strong showing, too. And I think that's another sort of natural reaction to what people are trying to do. Yeah, so how do you think that? Because I was actually kind of surprised by that, because I thought that Leyline would be overrepresented, but... Obviously, Black Red is doing well. So I'm I'm just going to quote Eric Landon, how Black Red Black Red was one of the more difficult matchups for Breach, and I don't know if you want to comment on that from the Breach side, Rich. Maybe that's just another uh, Landon being so good at Black Red that tough matchups seem easy for him. But no, what, I think what are your I think that's pretty reasonable because the Black Red decks have. Disruption and a clock, and that's scary. The the breach decks don't really have the sideboard space to play the sort of graveyard hate that you'd really want. I mean, usually your sideboard space is far too precious to shove for a ley line into your sideboard, and the the Grixis or the the red-black reanimator decks can make something horrifying happen to you on the second turn. And, you know, this build has 10 disruption cards main, and then after sideboarding, um, you know, in comes, uh, looks like Stronghold Gambit, which you don't have a great solution to either. Yeah, actually, blue-white-red, now that I'm thinking about it, there's not really a card you can run, right? Because you can't obviously can't run Rest in Peace. We're seeing people move towards Lavinia instead of Surgical Extraction to fight the other mm-hmm. Breach decks. Right. So I could actually see how it could have a good matchup against the Blue-White-Red specifically. Because yeah. what, what's the best Enlightened Tutor target to throw Reanimator? Well, there's Tormod's Crypt, and the problem right. with Tormod's Crypt is that you're down a card. Yeah. Well, you're down two if you tutor for it. Right, exactly. So if your opponent... In tombs and exhumes, and you've enlightened tutored for crypt and then crypt. It's it's a wash. You're not actually ahead. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I guess I can see how how they could have a good matchup. Obviously, they're they're doing something right because we've actually seen Black Red really surge in its metagame share over the past month. So. Yeah, I, and I, I I like I like your analysis. I think that. If I was just to take a look at everything from the top down, I would absolutely not want to bring Black Red to an event because I would be worried about Leyline. And we see these Chalice Leyline decks like at the top. Right. But if if Breach is going to end up being that high of a percentage, then I mean, you just might you want to play the deck that has the best matchup against that. So. No, that all said. Breach doesn't look like it's a high percentage of the metagame. 
I mean, we don't have metagame numbers, but we can look at the top eight. And, you know, not only do we not see a lot of breach, but we don't see a lot of decks that are going to be soft to breach, do we? That's true. And I think that we we sort of have this, like, I don't want to say small, but much smaller online metagame when we're looking at these events. There are lots of people that play very regularly and all of this analysis that we're doing for the sort of meta share for breach and all of that is sort of more focused online you go to a paper event the percentage of players that are playing it online is not going to be the same at a paper event absolutely and part of it is that it's not actually easy to build in real life if you want to build this deck you need a set of lion's eye diamonds but you also need a different set of fetch lands than you'd use in a storm deck. And a plateau. Somehow a plateau, which is frustrating because I don't have a beta plateau. And so, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll find out that the Ultima build does not involve plateau. <laughs> there were some Prismatic Vista builds that didn't have plateau this week. Right, right. Um, it, it also requires a set of Force of Wills, so... When was the last time we had a legacy deck that had these fetch lands, Lions Eye Diamond, and Force of Wills? So, unless you have a bunch of different legacy decks built that you can Frankenstein together, you probably don't have all these cards together. That's a great point. I hadn't really thought about that. I can't think of any other deck that would play those cards. Exactly. So there's, you know, you, you sort of have to take your Storm deck and your Show and Tell deck and graft them together. At least that's sort of what I did to build this deck. <clears throat> yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Something I really not, had not considered. And that we're, might... we're just degenerates that have all of the cards in Legacy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and I have a bunch of legacy decks that I keep built at any given time, but most people are reasonable human beings and so I don't do that. I know. I don't want to talk about I don't want to talk about it this episode. Every single time I think about it though, I'm getting closer and closer to becoming a reasonable person. I don't wanna be. I don't wanna be. Oh, well, I, I get it. I've been looking at I've been looking at houses around Norwood and wow are they expensive and I have all this value tied up in um, in fancy cardboard for uh, why do I do that? And so I've been really just pondering all of that. I'm I'm in the same boat. I'm absolutely there. I'm Ian is, is going to try to try to tell us to hold off until he does it in two or three years. I'm building a doomsday bunker. I don't know what you guys are talking about. How are you going to pay for your doomsday bunker? <laughs> <laughs> Six months of prepackaged meals is expensive. Yeah, it is. It, there's, there's no joke, man. <laughs> I have a lot of macaroni and cheese in my basement. That's all I'll say. But I have to move soon, so I'm going to have to figure that out. Right, exactly. And I, I know this isn't a pound MTG finance cast, but still, there's... There's an absurd amount tied up in these cards, right? So yeah. I just saw somebody running for the exit, like right when I was doing the cast research, like a couple hours ago. Hmm. I think it was Daniel D'Amato, maybe. I don't know. Selling out of power on Twitter. 
I do. Do you ever want like worry about a run, Rich? Um, I'm not that athletic. I don't run, but um. <laughs> so I mean, I, I certainly do think about. There's way too much value tied up in this. The bottom could drop any second. Um, at the same time, it hasn't before, and it's continued to go up. And so far, up until now, I've always been of a mind that, well, I don't really need the money. What would I sell it for? On the other hand, and like I said, I've been looking at houses, and um, it turns out they're not actually very cheap. No, no, not at all. <laughs> so you know, I've been I've been thinking about well all of that, and I I don't think I would I don't think I would ever be without a set of power. But do I need to have more than one set of power? Maybe I don't. Right. I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to put more awful ideas in your head. But a set of beta power is the down payment on a house. Right. Right. It's definitely crossed my mind, and you know, it's. I don't know if I have a particularly rational argument for holding on to a set of beta power, though. I, I like having it. It's fun. It's nice. Um, but I don't know if I have anything more rational than that. Yeah, and I wasn't actually playing or even aware of Magic's existence in 2008, 2009. But the story that you hear now in the old school community is that a lot of Americans sold their power to Europeans during those years. They did. Um, around that time period, Wizards of the Coast essentially killed... So a lot of things happened at once. Wizards basically killed Vintage by restricting Brainstorm. Um, a few other things happened, but the long and the short of it is that restricting Brainstorm obliterated U.S. Vintage. Well, there were some market forces, too. At, at the same... Right, right, right. At the same time, um, the, the, the economy crashed. So all these factors led to a lot of American power getting shipped over to Europe, where the Europeans could pay pretty well for it compared to, you know, U.S. dollars at the time. And a lot of people sold out. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I've been looking at lately. And because, you know, we're seeing the VIX rising, we're seeing the price of gold rising again. And it just got me thinking about that time. Like, I, I wasn't trading magic cards. I was just, you know, I was actually in the market at the time. But it, it does have me a little on edge lately. Well, you know, what, what I will point out, again, I'm no pound MTG finance expert, but I've never met anyone who said, boy, am I glad I sold my power then. I've met a lot of people who have said, I sure regret selling my power and that doesn't mean that that's how it will always be. There, there may be a period where people say, I sure dodged a bullet. But historically, it's never been right to sell your power. Right. 
I did it and it was right because my wife told me to. <laughs> <laughs> and, if I, and if I didn't, it was not going to be good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're buying a house or if you're paying off like a high interest loan or something, then, then it does make sense even if you expect the asset to go up to sell it, right? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But I, I don't know. Like we've seen the price of dual land sort of floundering, right? Not mm-hmm. really, not, not free falling by any means and i'm backstopping in some spots too at this point like uh i, I was picking up uh unlimited scrubland on ebay for 175 last week like I, i'm gonna snap up any unlimited dual under 200 dollars just because you know right and there are certain cards like especially like unlimited duels that i just want to have like I, mm-hmm. i'm comfortable owning them regardless of what the value is and i feel that way about even my unlimited power, but I'm certainly not in the market for sort of like I used to have eight copies of Force of Will and eight copies of Wasteland and everything, and I've sold down to four of all that stuff. Uh, so that I guess that's all. Yeah. That's how I feel right now. I I hear you, and I'm still you know I still have I think fourteen copies of Force of Will. Nice. Um, I have three sets for different decks that I have put together, and then. One for my alliances set, and then one for my Spanish alliances set. <laughs> you have more volcanic islands than anyone I know, that's for sure. I, I probably have too many. Let me, I have a little notebook where I have this written down. Um, I have... And this is just because I have a lot of decks built. Like, these are, these are literally all in decks. I have one beta... Seven revised and a set of unlimited. Yep, that's a lot of uh, that's 16, <laughs> 16 volcanic islands. That, so that qualifies I, as a lot. I, I have yeah, I mean I, I have a lot of duels, and you know part of it is that I've had a lot of them forever, and I like to keep a lot of decks built. And I'm not sure I have a rational explanation for that. I just I don't know. I like collecting cards. It's fun. And I like having a bunch of uh, of decks built at any given time. I'm I'm the same way. I think I have ten different legacy decks built and all put together, and it's awful <laughs> because I've I've brought like Death and Taxes Burn and Death and Taxes to the last three events that I went to. But I I completely understand the mentality because like you want to have everything together if you mm-hmm. have the cards for it, and you enjoy collecting like I do. Right. When you want to build a new deck, you're like, oh, I could just have another copy of this deck if I picked up these cards again. Right. That's why I have eight Force of Wills <laughs> and whatever it is. So, yeah. I'm there, too. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's it's no less healthy than having a thousand Antiquities Atox, which I also have. Wow. Um, a thousand? But yeah. that's 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 like branding. Right, like I mean, <laughs> you can't you can't stop that now. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, if I, if I you were to like cut it. down in your Atog collection, people would send you more, and you would have more of them. <laughs> I guess that's true, and you know, I I like having these things. It's it's irrational, but it's fun. You know, I I got a decent deal, so I picked up my third set of Fallen Empires. A few days ago, because why not? I'm one set short of a playset now, because that's what you need in life. Favorite favorite art on him, the Torak. 
Easily the wolf. Oh. Everybody's ah. entitled to their own opinion. I don't think you can go wrong so long as it's not that new card frame one. Yeah, oh, that's awful. I, I, I agree with that. Absolutely. But I think any of the Fallen Empires ones are very respectable choices. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm partial to uh, to the table at this point. I like the circle. Yeah. I mean, I, I, think that, I think that they're all perfectly fine calls, really. What about Order of the Ebon Hand? Oh, the one that looks like the new modern magic art with the blood dripping and the, the shield with spikes on it. Oh, the Ron yeah. Spencer one? That's pretty cool. Yes. Yes, yep. that's that's my that's mine. I'm, I'm going to go with the Christopher Rush one, but I think that that's also a good choice. The Ron Spencer one is a, a classic, but the Rush one is great, too. This giant glowing sword? I mean, that's cool. Yeah, the Thrall... The other one's the Thrall one, right? Uh, it's it's a centaur, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think is that Susan Van Camp? Probably. Or well, no, is that Melissa, Melissa Benson. Benson? Melissa Benson. Melissa yeah. Benson, I think. Yeah. 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 I. I yeah. That, that one's not bad either. But I think I'm. Yeah. I think I'm. I'm rolling with the uh, Spencer. This is this is turning into like a like a more old school magic discussion now. What happened to magic art? Rich, can you walk us through the transition that happened from all of these old, mm-hmm. iconic pieces that we all remember to the, I don't know, sort of bulk marketing drivel that we see now? I know that we have some some great artists that work in the game now, like, like Seb McKinnon and people like that, but... The majority of magic artwork just doesn't do it for me anymore. Uh, I, I agree. And I think that two things happened. Um, first is that Wizards became much more controlling about what went into the art. Um, wizards started to view the art much more as a, uh, a part of the branding, a part of the marketing. You know, one of the big innovations that magic had is that it had genuine original paintings. And that was powerful. And I think if you compare it to some of the other offerings of the 90s, there were games like uh, Spellfire that were just recycling old D&D artwork. And you've probably never heard of Spellfire because I think a large part of that is that it didn't have the art that Magic had. And Wizards stopped letting artists have free reign over what they were doing and started to... um, take control of it. The other thing that happened, I think, is that Wizards wanted to have more corporate-friendly art. And so all of the art became safe and polished and focus-grouped. And instead of having any sort of creativity in the artwork, you just ended up with safe garbage. You know, one of the things that I find so wonderful about Eternal Weekend is getting to talk with some of the old school artists. And what you can really see is that for a lot of the old pieces, those artists put in creativity and thought and reflection and ended up with really beautiful pieces that were narrative, that had stories behind them. 
and really took a spark of themselves and manifested on the canvas. And I don't see that anymore. Instead, I see dinosaur number 37 and it's, you know, pirate number 45. And you could swap one piece of art for another in any given set with no real consequence because the artists don't have that space. And instead you have word from on high about exactly what to draw. Yeah, and there's certainly the global market aspect too, right? I mean, they were just printing these for English language, you know, North America at first. And the famous example is Judge Skeletons, right? That's the, true. The Chinese, uh, or I don't know if it, was, if it was traditional Chinese that they were printing 5th uh, edition in. or Right, they needed to de-skeletonize them. Yeah, they had to get rid of these skeletons on the mm -hmm. cards. Right. Did they right. change the name in Chinese, or was it still Drudge Skeletons, just with no skeletons? I don't know. That's a good, good question. I actually don't know the answer to that. I'd be interested in finding out if there's a Chinese speaker who can read the uh, card. I, I'd actually like to know that. Yeah. Well, I know our podcast reach goes all the way to Montana. Ooh. <laughs> okay, that's Maybe. pretty far. Um, it is. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's really good. So... You know, I, I feel like uh, in a lot of cases the art has been homogenized. Um, I love the Foglio artwork, and that's just gone. It used to be, once upon a time, that you had all these diverse styles. You had um, you had really cartoon-like art from the Foglios. You had beautiful watercolor art um, from, uh, from Drew Tucker and... Um, you, you had um, sort of uh, what looked like illustrations from a comic book from uh, like a lot of the Quentin Hoover stuff really yeah. stands out as unique artwork. And of course you have um, Jesper Mirfors with his really, really powerful style that can be at the same time a little bit creepy and also fun loving and, you know, being able to, blur some of those lines is something that I really appreciate in his artwork and you don't get that anymore. When I was, when I was younger, I used to be able to look at a magic card and just know who the artist was by looking at the art. And I don't think you can do that today. So other than Seb McKinnon, who has a pretty unique style, I, I feel like most of the art is kind of all the same. Yeah. Absolutely. One thing that I believe it was Jesper said also was that they never thought that they weren't doing art for a three inch by 1.75 inch frame. So there were never, you know, there, there was always a primary subject and then maybe one or two people in the background or at most a battle between two people. Mm. And if you look at a lot of the new art, it's like these high, they're taking advantage of the digital high resolution to pack a bunch of stuff into these pictures, right? So yeah. It's so funny to me. Like, I, I recognize the cards by sight from drafting online. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times when I get them in my hand, I'm like, oh, that's what that's a picture of? <laughs> like, Merfolk Skydiver, I just, it's just like a blur of colors to me. And then when I like have to look at the card in my hand, I'm like, oh, there's a, a merfolk on there oh this is a merfolk you know 
where like I don't know if it's it's like not respecting the size that that's being printed in or something like you know the the, the framing's not being done properly but it's like uh th- they're just too busy right yeah you're you're absolutely right I think that the Christopher Rush was an absolute master of using the space effectively right. um, all of his paintings not just Black Lotus but look at something like Flying Man it's it's powerful, it evokes a lot of emotion, and it's not too busy because every little piece of it counts. Nothing's wasted. Right. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of the art today, you're absolutely right, has too much going on. And, you know, and I don't blame the artists for that because I feel like Wizards of the Coast are telling the artists, well, you need to have a cyclops, and then also put a mongoose in the background, and maybe three gremlins. Make sure they're extra ugly because they're gremlins. And, you know, by the end of it, it's it's just a few inches by a few inches, and I, I don't think that that really lends itself well to a lot of these cards. Right. No, Exactly. But it's it's even worse than that, I think. If you you know, if you look at today's card frames, it the card frame today is such an unspeakable abomination of just of hideous, hideous trash that not even the old great artists can have something that looks good. So um, if you look at uh, the Stone Coil Serpent. It's, it actually has really nice art, yeah. but it is completely wasted because of today's card frames being just... Com- I, I won't even call them garbage, because at least garbage was something useful, and then it became garbage. <laughs> um, so, it, Mark Poole is a good artist. I like his work. Yeah. But I, I don't even think you could take Atog and put it in today's card frame and have it look decent. Ah, it's a shame. It is. I think that the only reason we have this frame, I I can't think of any reason other than the fact that there's some egotistical person who made this frame and thinks it's so good and he won't hear any of it to be... There's there's no way that this frame makes any sense other than, I I don't know, someone made it, maybe, maybe someone's kid made it, um, or, you know, like maybe, maybe Wizards feels bad for whoever made this frame. And so they're, they're letting that person use it. I, I don't really know, but it it is unthinkable to me that this card frame is not hurting pack sales. Yeah, I, I certainly believe it. I mean, I played the card Uro this weekend and I still have no idea what that is. Well, at least um, you had the little curly top of the frame to remind you that it was legendary. Thank God for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now I'm really hoping I didn't have two and play at once. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also did not know that card was a legend, so there you go. Yeah. Wait, I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping that. it is. It is a legend, right? I'm sure it is. It's got a okay. name. I, I don't actually... I don't actually know. Didn't they just print that green card that's a legend questing beast without a proper name? Yes. Yep. Although, so, if you know Arturian legends, I got a bunch of emails about this. 
because I I commented like, why is this legendary? And then everybody's like, well, you just don't know the questing beast is a legendary beast, and I didn't, but now I do. Thank you, thank you, listeners. Well, there you go. I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that the listeners can explain this, and maybe the listeners will be able to come up with a justification for today's asymmetrical looking card frame. But I seriously doubt it. That's impossible. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've covered a lot of uh, a lot of breach and a lot of nostalgia, a lot of um, market concerns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything else that we wanted to hit? I think that's good. I, I think that's uh, that's a good bit of content right there. All right, well, here I'm. I'm going to ask a hard hitting question. You can right. change one. Thing about modern magic to make it better what would you change the card frames uh, Ian uh, I would probably say that I wish and now you go first oh I don't have an answer to this I was asking the hard hitting questions I'm not I'm just the interviewer right now. I mean, I'm if, taking a backseat. If you oh, want something more interesting than just the card frames, it would be to put Jesper Mirfors back as the art director for Magic. Okay. He would never allow these these abomination of a card frame to exist. And when he was the art director, I feel like Magic looked amazing, and the artwork alone was enough to justify buying magic cards. So when did that end? That's a really good question. I um, assumed that it was, you know, sometime around masks, but I, I don't actually know. So after Fallen Empires, Jesper would stop illustrating cards for sets, but after Portal, he was rehired as the art director. Um, he put together the first style guide for the Wrath Cycle with Mark Tadine, Anson Maddox, Anthony Waters, and Matt Wilson. Uh, so Gamepedia doesn't seem to say. Hmm. Yeah. Well, listeners, if anybody knows, let us know. We'll we'll do some research and we'll edit that in. We're we're not gonna. No. We're not gonna. But maybe maybe we will. <laughs> so Richard, I think. Go ahead. Sorry. So I as everybody was talking about that, I think the the whole the whole idea of less is more with magic and maybe scaling back the new product releases mm. to not just have such a numbness of new things coming out for the consumers could actually be better for the game so i'm going to go with that yeah that's pretty similar to my answer actually tom in spirit my answer was going to be finding the person who first thought of commander back on the day that they conceived it and giving them a hug so that they never decided to play the format with the second person. And <laughs> I, think that that, I think that would actually solve a lot of the problems. Do you think Commander's the problem? <laughs> well, the problem is it's a great player acquisition tool, and it's caused like a, a sort of a realignment at the top level away from what I want to see. 
I'm not saying that it's a bad decision by Wizards of the Coast. You know, they're, mm. they're doing what, what they see on the spreadsheets, but a lot of what I don't care about, I guess I would say, is sort of highlighted by that aspect of the game. Interesting. Okay. I mean, Wizards has always made a bunch of stuff that I don't care about, and that's been fine because they've also made things that I do care about. Um, the whole space of organized play at this point is such a jumbled mess. We used to have Pro Tours, and then we didn't, and then we had Mythic Championships, and that lasted for about a week, and those are all gone now, and now we're on Players Tours, which are sometimes on Arena, but not necessarily, and I don't even understand what's happening anymore. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair summation. So, you know... There was a tournament this past weekend that... I believe was a, what was it, a 20K, 25K that only 96 players signed up for, even though it was open admission. Was it on Arena? Yeah, because it was like a bring-your-own-device arena tournament. So it was a live, in-person arena tournament? Exactly. Why? In Los Angeles. Why would they do that? I don't know, but it happened. I, I believe it. Um... You know, maybe, maybe someone at Wizards has a brilliant plan for how all the pieces are going to come together and how organized play is going to trend into more sales for either real-life magic or arena or moto or whatever they're doing. But at this point, with so many changes and so many arbitrary things happening, not only do I feel lost, I feel like Wizards is lost too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that they're in a tough spot because I think that they, a lot of their revenue did come from, like you guys were talking about before, putting True Name in a Commander product or you know, putting Scavengings or Flusterstorm or whatever. Like We used to have to buy Containment Priests, right? We used to have to buy mm -hmm. those decks to get Containment Priests. And I think that did get some people into Commander and then Commander became really big. And it's sort of the story, but... If you're trying to transition to new players being your revenue stream and get rid of us, there's a gap there that you're gonna have to you're gonna have to jump over a, a pretty big ravine, right? And there, I think that yeah. I think they're running right now. They're the, they're the you know Wiley Coyote running out over the cliff, just keeping their <laughs> well. And, yeah, that does scare me a lot. I I think that they've made a lot of assumptions that they would be able to keep a lot of their player base. And I don't have the numbers. I don't know if that's happening, but, you know, I haven't felt this disconnected from the game, I can't even tell you, possibly ever. And I think it's it's a big risk when you veer off in a new direction to try to attract new people to your game that you are going to lose some of the people that have been your most stalwart supporters. And at this point... Maybe they have a brilliant plan for what they're doing. I know they've talked about their numbers being the best. The, the thing that scares me, though, is that it's really, really easy to mistake a successful product with burgeoning new customers with selling the future equity of your game for short-term profit. And so exactly. we won't be able to know what Wizards are actually doing until we look back on this a few years from now, and maybe we'll say they were brilliant, they did an amazing job, look what they've done for the game, look how they've expanded it 
or maybe we won't. Maybe we'll look back and see that they squandered what they had in the pursuit of trying to get more. And, you know, I don't know, but it's concerning that we're even talking about that as a possibility. I think that the power creep in a lot of the new sets exemplifies that, the way we've seen more and more broken cards getting printed. And the problem with power creep is that you really are selling future equity. Right. I think that's a that's a wonderful place to wrap it up. I think those comments were awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you put that really well. Thanks, guys. So if people want to hear more of these hot takes, this uh, how, how should they find you, Rich? Well, if, if you want to hear me grouching about card frames and how everything used to be better, um, you if you're... If you're making bad enough decisions to be on Twitter, you can follow me uh, at signed Atog Lord. And um, if you want to watch me stream, I'm just Rich Shea, uh, twitch.tv slash R-I-C-H-S-H-A-Y. And you can see my videos on YouTube at youtube.com slash Rich Shea. So, I didn't know that. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, all of my videos get posted to YouTube after I stream. Man, I'm watching the VODs like an idiot. No, you, you should can, be watching the YouTubes. Yeah, you can you can tune in and check out the YouTubes, and you know I, I I would encourage you if you like this sort of thing to tune into my uh, my stream. It's a uh, I'm very fortunate that I I have a really good chat in my stream, and the people in my chat are able to have really good some pretty in depth conversations, and that's really really uh, something that I appreciate. Yeah, I, I couldn't recommend your stream higher. Actually, the a big part of the reason I'm on this journey is because of your stream, you know? So. I'll, I'm going to watch it on YouTube just so I can see the Mike Bloomberg ads. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ian18125 on Twitter. Tom? TSmileyMTG, and you can follow us at DeadFormatCast. DeadFormatCast at gmail.com. And that's a wrap.